Welcome to the second series of Ethics for Advisors. I'm Matthew Smith, and I'm Head of Retail Content at Conexus and Editor of Professional Planner. In this latest series, we have engaged ethics experts and practitioners to talk through real-life ethical scenarios advisors encounter in their everyday professional lives with a focus on how advisors and practice owners are implementing ethical practices in their businesses. How individuals act or react when faced with an ethical dilemma will come down to a combination of factors including their backgrounds, experiences, education, situational and environmental factors. We've asked advisors, you guys out there, to submit real-life ethical scenarios you may have faced, both client-facing and dilemmas relating to employment structures or situations with the intention of unpacking these in light of FASIA's Code of Ethics. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IOOF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. We're joined today by Kim Bailey, Technical Services Manager, Client Experience and Professional Development, Wealth Advice at JB Weir, and Selena Nutley, Partner, McMahon Clark Lawyers. Good morning. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Kim. Good morning, Matt and Selena. Yeah, good morning both. Great to have you both here and really looking forward to this conversation. We're going to get into a really interesting thread, I think, in where, I guess, compliance and the law ends and where ethics begins. But in the meantime, Kim, you, you know, you're a great contributor to Professional Planner and, uh, you know, in, in your comments and, and insights you bring to the publication. So that's fantastic. And really interested in a little, little bit about your own advice journey and your, your journey in ethics. Thanks very much for the opportunity, Matt. Really looking forward to the discussion as it unfolds today. For me, um, I, I had a bit of a sort of um, a windy road to advice yeah. and it started out in, in tax and superannuation consulting. So I come from the accounting rank. I'm, I'm actually the technical services manager, so that, that means I have to stay on top of, of legislation and, yeah. I, and I am responsible to identify those uh, opportunities and threats and strengths and weaknesses. And so when Fasir came on to the horizon, I, I had no alternative but to embrace it in order to understand how... It was going to be applied across our business. That's what I do. It's changes to superannuation tax, whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm there and it's, it's all coming out of my mind. So I was part of the first 600 advisors to sit the Basir exam, um, exam in June 2019. Mm-hmm. And with that ticked off, I had to then turn my attention to the ethics committee. So that was they're, they're the basic requirements that you have, you have to do as an advisor to, to actually complete your Basir up with. So... By the time I finished the exam, there was some bridging courses out there, so I signed up to one of the first and uh, and got that done. So, um, look, I wasn't thrilled to have to go back to study. I had mm. to do so much in both my accounting and financial planning mm. um, life. However, once I got into the ethics and got over that, I was actually hooked and that was also coming back from that. Mm. So the 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 thing that was really obvious back then in 2019 was that the industry was maybe in a little bit of shock because there just wasn't the support out there um, to get people through this. And so, mm. yeah, I had to I could build stuff and I had to really get um, into the coaching role with the advisors. We, we really wanted to hit the ground running and get this done and, and gosh, yes, it's turned out. I'm glad a lot of our advisors did take that attitude because it, 
you know, nothing ever slows down and I, I wouldn't like to be trying to get this done at, at this point in time. But anyway, here we are. Yeah. Um, and, look, it's been amazing to work with the advisors um, and, and just watch their transformation as they get start to get it. We are a traditional stockbroking firm. JB is probably the old stockbroking firm in Australia. It's got an amazing um, history, but these days it's a sophisticated wealth management. But fundamentally that expertise and skill that's been built up, like it's about I don't know, 170 years, mm. that skill has actually sort of been that sort of client-centric culture has been sort of embedded. So we actually run a model where our investment advisors are specialists and they're very, very um, hmm. specialised in what they do. The other part of the firm is the strategic advisors and so we actually have bifurcated the, the two roles there and um, so we can bring a whole balance sheet advice model to our clients. However, the, the specialisations don't actually cross over. So I really saw the challenges for investment advisors not so much in the ethics component, but most definitely in the exam. And I understand that Basia have built the model on the future state, hmm. whereby they want people to come through the baseline qualified, and then if they want to specialise, off they go, and that's not dissimilar to the accounting world, the medical models and things like that. However, I will say that I think it was really tough for people that have been doing what they've been doing for a number of years, even decades for some, to actually have to start to understand other aspects of what they don't normally do in their day-to-day. So it was not without its challenges, that's for sure. Yeah, and what's your view? I mean, the as you mentioned, the, the stockbroking model has endured. How do you see that stockbroker model continuing? I think it's a broader question of mm. whether or not the the traditional stockbroking model is able to survive regardless of, of the right. I think that yeah. uh, technology is really, um, you know, butting up against the, uh, the, the ability to actually deliver that cost effectively. Mm-hmm. And I think um, firms that are investment specialists as opposed to stockbrokers mm-hmm. um, will, will survive and perhaps even um, flourish because um, that sort of specialisation is, is often what is needed to actually deliver something that's a little bit different or out of the box. And uh, so I think for JB Weir, we definitely won't be changing our model. Hmm. And um, having just focusing in on the ethics component, it hasn't had anybody to do it. It's actually enhanced their ability. It's given them the chance to examine those pesky little things like your biases. They're unconscious. You don't even know they're there. But they've had to confront those and they've become more self-aware and I think that's good for any advisor, uh, to be honest with you. And um, in terms of the actual service model, I think the biggest challenge for investment advisors, and insurance advisors have been in the same category because they're very much a specialist. And I don't take anything away from those two specialisations because they are very, very complicated. But I think the challenge is that the code of ethics requires you to be able to look more broadly and not just be myopic about what you know. I'm giving you this, you wanted a, you know, a big map, and that's what you're getting today. No, it can't be that. You've got to offer fries and all that sort of stuff. So <laughs> that was the biggest challenge, I think, for our firm was to sort of look broader, um, not just solve, and, and that's where the uncomfortableness comes into it because they think if they mention the word that they're crossing that sort of authority boundary, but no, they have to actually have an understanding 
the investment is not the only part of the client's needs and pleas. They don't know what they don't know. Mm. So you think there's another need, you are required to infer. I think that's probably the answer your question yeah and it's the first mcdonald's analogy as well in in the podcast series which is great uh selena you know look really interested in i I know you've um built you know ethics and and these types of conversations into a lot of the things uh you do so just give me a little bit of background on on you know your own law practice where where you kind of specialize and and what your kind of ethics journey has been Mm, sure. Uh, so I'm a specialist fund, um, financial services lawyer um, and mm. McMahon Clark itself, um, we are very heavily involved in the industry. It's a, it's our discrete area of specialisation, working with um, financial services, um, uh, um, uh, people involved in the financial services industry in um, every different sector. So we act for licensees, we act for responsible entities, for um, authorised representatives, advisors, clients, mm-hmm. um, you know, so we see it from all sides of the equation. Um, and I particularly do a lot of work with financial advisors. So um, I have worked with advisors on these types of ethical issues and it was difficult to provide them with any guidance because, um, you know, we all had an idea of what the um, underlying philosophy was and, of course, we know what the law is, um, but there wasn't anything to build that um, that link together. Um, and sitting outside, directly outside of the coalface of the profession, um, Lawyers have the benefits of we have conduct rules, so we have something akin to the code of conduct already, um, and that underpins the way that we need to treat our clients. So, um, to me, the introduction of a code of ethics, I know it's it's uh, code of conduct, it's, it's come under some criticism um, in the industry um, and from lawyers as well, um, it's... It is. It helps that transition that we're all trying to achieve to uh, a profession um, as opposed to a business. So um, I think that right now um, the entire financial services industry is it's in a, a watershed um, uh, time. Mm-hmm. So we are seeing evolution and change on the back of um, largely the Banking Royal Commission that I think that um, uh, we won't see again for for some period of time, and there's some changes that that I don't agree with. Some things that I think are not a positive for either um, the industry or the clients. Um, but the code of ethics, I think, has something to offer for, or the, the code of conduct has something to offer for everyone. Um, I think this, um, the the financial advisors that are working their way through what the code of conduct means now, um, is that they're almost the trailblazers in the industry mm-hmm. um, because they are the first ones that are interpreting it. Every time we introduce a new law, a new standard, um, anything, um, it, it becomes a bit of an evolution um, because you have to see how it works in practice to understand what doesn't work, what are its limitations, mm. um, what might need guidance. So I don't know that necessarily the code of conduct might change, um, but I think as its application um, continues uh, and people become more familiar with the underlying um, values, we may see some um, changes to the guidance. And I think that's a really interesting space for all of us in the industry to be in at the moment. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a, a lawyer, if um, if you don't mind me saying, way of mm. thinking about it because, you know, <laughs> if I'm reading between the lines, area, you're talking a little bit about kind of precedents and and perhaps, um, you know, seeing how it's applied in, in real life and then for the, for the theory then to kind of catch up and, and morph in a way. Yeah, I think so. And and you're right, that is a very lawyer way to look at it. Mm. But I think that, um, you know, this is, 
Financial services is an industry that is so heavily regulated. Um, we're used to having um, uh, very clear laws in black and white. Yes. Um, lots of, you know, big matrix behind it. Um, but ethics, a uh, code of ethics or a code of conduct introduces shades of grey. Um, and it's, you know, it's a mind shift to think in those shades of grey. So you need to take inspiration um, and assistance in interpret interpreting it um, from, um, you know, from the way that um, that the um, that ASIC, that, um, you know, the various players might ultimately, or mm. FASIA, um, more importantly, might interpret um, the, these codes. So I think precedence does play a role in that. Yeah, look, I'm, I am interested in bringing in Kim on this as well because I know you've probably seen quite a lot of um, of of that in action. But before I do, Selena, I'm also going to put you on the spot a little bit as well. Um, often I think um, lawyers are sometimes criticised or at least, you know, the compliance aspect of advice is criticised somewhat in in some, in some ways keeping advisors from being able to, you know, be ethical and think ethical and have that ethical thinking because in some ways, you know, that ticker box approach and that, you know, as you know, the approach to, you know, adhering to the law and ensuring that the compliance department is very happy, which obviously is some somehow driven by, you know, the lawyer's expectations yeah. does keep advisors from being able to kind of step back and say, well, actually, what's my obligation here through that ethical lens and through that ethical thinking? Yeah, I think you're really right. Um, and I think that there's been um, possibly an overemphasis on um, ticking those boxes mm. um, to be able to demonstrate that you have, um, you've uh, um, done a particular task in a way that the lawyers or the lawyers might say is the most defensible. Mm. Um, so it is also a mind shift for us as well. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, we, we try to, as a firm and as a practitioner, we try to be quite pragmatic about um, the, the way that we um, give advice to our clients about that. So um, it is, it is pervasive across the profession though, that, um, you know, we, um, we do, we do create waves when um, uh, when when we say yes, but you need to. It's it's all well and good to to say that you've got to act in the client's best interest, and um, but show me how that looks on a piece of paper that I can ultimately mm. um, hold up if um, if it's ever challenged. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interested in your view here, Kim. I mean, you must have really seen this in action, this, um, you know, tension between compliance and then kind of eth ethical thinking. How have you seen that? Um, take place? Look, I, I think it, it, in some ways it almost seems incompatible mm. because we've got the situation where the code is the responsibility of the advisor and the Chapter 7 licensee responsibilities uh, almost seem, it does to me seem somewhat incompatible um, because you've got two segregated or separate uh, responsibilities there. And I think that my experience with licensees is they want to do the, what they have to do in order to be compliant. They don't want ASIC breathing down mm -hmm. their necks. Mm -hmm. So often you'll see a very conservative interpretation uh, or, as someone said, a rules-based approach to it and it sticks and boxes off. However, I think this is the real challenge with the code. Um, advisors should feel empowered to start to exercise what's, you know, what they've possibly forgotten to do, and that's professional judgment. They've mm. actually got to start to, to 
to think about what the code means for each and every client experience. The other thing about the code is it's meant to be read, the whole thing is meant to be read together. So you don't just cherry pick the bits. Compliance teams and in-house councils can't just sort of say you're obliged to comply with all that's the end of the story with the code of ethics. Yes, that's one standard, but let's look at it completely and let's look at the guidance around it. So I think that um, we're in this sort of transitional period where the licensee is actually taking supervisory responsibility for advisors, and I think that's making it difficult because they need to slot it into a compliance program and establish the compliance program. They have to have ways of pop testing and checking and reporting back, and there is that framework that they have to work in. So I think... I'm almost going to reserve my answer to when we actually do have the, the, the independent um, disciplinary body functioning, which isn't getting, it is actually not too far away mm-hmm. now, to see whether or not um, we actually have a different relationship between the licensee and the advisor's responsibility under the code. I fear, because we've got ACID up there front and centre, that we might get a little bit of an iteration of what they're doing in terms of licence, um, monitoring and supervision. I think that's a real challenge for ASIC. Um, they're assuming the responsibilities of the area as such, so I hope they don't just think, well, we'll do what licensees have done, in effect, slot it into what we, we're good at and we already have that reward part. If we do, Matt, I think that the, the case for independence around licensing and that just gets more and more compelling. That's, mm. you know... That would seem to me to be the end state if we keep having. Yeah, to, we can't we can't stay on the same road. We've got to change the road. We've got to change the path. Yeah, to use Selena, you know, can the can ethics and the code exist within the current licensing regime, or does it need to change? Uh, look, I guess the this. If you look at the guidance, um, and, you know, being the lawyer, um, I've looked at the guidance to see what FASIA says, and they say that this um, operates as an extension to the law. So, um, and this isn't um, uncommon with codes of conduct, certainly with the legal profession rules. um, We're told if there are various standards, you've got to comply with the highest one. Um, So, to the extent that there might be um, something that the Code of Ethics um, or the, the Code of Conduct aspirationally um, says that you have to do, but it's not necessarily consistent with the strict terms of the law, um, the, the the higher standard will apply. So I think they can coexist, mm-hmm. but it's the challenge is finding that right balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, you know, that is an, an ever-evolving um, uh, assessment, I think. Mm. And, and um, I know in the interviews I've done with ASIC over the years, um, this this um, idea about compliance overreach by licensees seems to have gotten louder. You know, in recent um, in the in the recent twelve months, and 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 certainly in recent months, um, the, this this discussion around well, um, you know, licensees really need to to kind of in a way back off on on their compliance, but. You know, what, I mean, from a lawyer's perspective, that must be a, a curious kind of um, situation to be in, I, I imagine. Yeah, it, it is because, you know, as, as Kim's pointed out, there are 
um, some elements of the Corps Act in Chapter 7 that are very much licensees' responsibilities uh, mm. and the buck stops with them. So um, if the advisor does the wrong thing, um, then the licensee is still the one who is yes. ultimately responsible. There are some elements that are um, the obligations are placed on the advisors directly. Um, but so the idea of um, licensees stepping back um, the compliance monitoring or um, involvement in compliance with advisors, I can see would terrify <laughs> a great number of my clients. Um, so, but equally, um, I think that there is um, something to be said with the advisors of sometimes there is um, a real tension with the licensees around what a licensee wants to do and what the advisor um, thinks they should be doing um, as the person that's actually dealing with the client. So, um, you know, there's arguments either side, but um, I, 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 it would require a fundamental rethink of, of the, um, the liability provisions, I would think, before any licensees mm. would embrace that. Hmm. Uh, and any other further points there? Because I know we've got in one of our scenarios, actually, we, you know, this um, this point comes out really nicely. So, um, looking forward to getting your thoughts, you know, in the context of that uh, scenario. But before we go there, um, Kim, any further thoughts on, on, on that topic? Well, look, it's probably just a reiteration. Hmm. Like, I think licensees respond to asset behaviour. And yeah. so, fundamentally, we're probably looking at the regulator to actually maybe go up and, and, and do some self-reflection on, on how this should work in practice and what the spirit of it is. Yeah. And who knows, I don't know what the handover has been going to be or has been between the original authority and, and being the, the, the uh, responsibility of being assumed by ASIC. But as I said before, if it just gets subsumed into BAU, I think we don't move forward with this um, and it just becomes another compliance obligation that advisors just don't want. They, you know, we want them to embrace it and, and to use it as an empowerment to actually use that professional judgment uh, element in their advice processes rather than just saying, tell me what I have to do and show me what boxes I've got to tick because that doesn't deliver a good outcome for anybody. Mm. We're going to move on to the ethical scenarios now. Firstly, thanks to listeners and readers of Professional Planner for submitting scenarios that we've used for this series. If you'd like to submit your own ethical scenarios to be in the next series, please do so through the Professional Planner website or email me directly. You can also earn CPD points from this episode. All you have to do is follow the link from the Professional Planner homepage or visit professionalplanner.com.au slash education and answer the questions relevant to the episode. This podcast is proudly brought to you by IWF Advice, who are committed to delivering leading professional development programs. Scenario one, as we all know from July 1 this year, we are all now required to renew ongoing fee arrangements annually and obtain the client's written consent to deduct ongoing fees. I don't disagree with this requirement, but it does create a lot of paperwork and follow-up. My licensee has suggested we enter into agreements with the clients for 11 months so that the arrangement falls below the 12-month threshold 
um, for an ongoing fee arrangement. I'm not sure whether that technically complies with the new obligations, but even if it does, it doesn't sit well with me. Uh, I don't want to do the wrong thing by any of my clients, but I also don't want to damage my relationship the, my relationship with the licensee. Um, will doing this put me in breach of the code of ethics, even though it's my licensee's idea? Um, I might start with, with you on this one, Kim. Yeah, thanks, um, Matt. It's, it's, uh, it really does fall well into the mm. conversation we've just been having, how do you, how do you actually butt up against uh, licensees? And so to me the answer to this one is the, the culture of the of the licensee that, you, that you're working with and that really will really inform the way that you approach this. And so ultimately if you're, if you're in an ethical, if you're in a, in a culture that, gives you an ethical confrontation such as this, I think that um, you really do need to consider the appropriateness of working within that environment. Now, that might sound a little bit, you know, trivial and, and it's easy just to, to change when things don't suit, but ultimately this is where ethics is going to force people to actually land, that they've got to reach deep inside and come to conclusions and, and then ultimately decide on the best way forward. But... Having said that, I think you don't get to that stage just by looking at it um, and throwing your hands up in the air. I think that, that as I've been saying, it's a, the code of ethics requires the exercise of professional judgment and it also actually empowers you to be able to, to, to challenge uh, processes and, 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 and licensee uh, policies and whatnot. So I think you've got an actual obligation, regardless of what you ethically feel about it, I think you can actually have it an obligation under the code to, to challenge uh, why this why this uh, approach is being implemented and, and ultimately how is it in the client's best interest mm. to do that. And it's not good enough to say, well, it's good for our practice, therefore it's good for clients' um, outcomes. That's really, really not the right answer. Mm. I think that's how I'd probably answer that one. Yeah, look, I think it's um, one of the great fears of, of regulators probably and policymakers that prescriptive regulation and policy leads to people figuring out workarounds. That's probably one of the big arguments for them to look at a more um, principles-based approach. What are your thoughts on this one, Selena? Yeah, look, I, I agree. And, you know, coming from a profession where we're often asked to find these workarounds, um, <laughs> what, um, what was screaming out at me when you read out that scenario was, um, standard one. So it's about complying not only with the actual terms of the law, but really looking at the yes. spirit. Um, and so trying not to participate and find ways to circumvent um, your obligations. And I think that's exactly what this is. So, you know, this is this um, this sort of tension is something that we see in practice quite a lot. Hmm. Um, and I have actually um, acted for a client who um who took direction from their licensee around a fees issue um, and that direction was contrary to the law uh, and that advisor ended up with a banning order. So this is a really, this is a very um, real issue and, you know, if I wanted to be the lawyer for a second, I'd say that um, when you're talking fee arrangements, the liability um, or the obligation um, to put in a place the appropriate um, fee arrangements falls on the fee recipient. So that often is the advisor, not the licensee. Mm. Um, so if the wrong thing, if the advisor does the wrong thing, 
um, then they're going to be the one that's in the firing line and they can't rely on the broad shoulders um, of the licensee. But setting aside the legal framework, um, it just, it, it, I think this advisor, um, you know, they're right to be concerned about this. Um, not only um, are we talking about standard um, standard one, but, you know, when we talk about um, other areas of the code, it's about um, promoting the ethical standards of the profession. Um, and the profession um, hasn't necessarily um, the industry in whole, not just if um, we haven't necessarily covered ourselves in glory in trying to find those workarounds in the past. So, hmm. um, I think that the, that um, that sort of situation is all kinds of um, fraught, really. Um, and, and as Kim said, it comes back to the best interests test. Um, if it's not, if, if the reason that you're doing it, um, or the, the licensee is suggesting it is because it's less paperwork, um, that's not in the client's best interests. You know, you can't can't circumvent a law that is designed for consumer protection um, to, to make life a little bit easier for, for you with your paperwork. And I also um, would add to that that, Having conversations with clients about fees is um, it, sometimes it's not always um, a great experience. And so I think that for advisors, you really are weighing up what is the best approach to my client relationship because ultimately you, your whole livelihood hangs or how good your relationships mm. are with your clients. Mm. Yeah. So let's crack on with number two. I've been working as an advisor at a private client business for almost five years. And in that time, I built up a client base. That's a combination of clients who have come to me through the organization mostly and a smaller proportion who have been referred through word of mouth. I've decided to join a private practice within a small licensee and I'm subject to a non-compete um, when I do leave and I'm considering whether it's appropriate at all to suggest clients who want to maintain a relationship with me to come along. It's um, clear in my employ employment agreement that uh, the current business owns the client relationship, which is fine because the practice I'm joining does not expect me to bring a book of clients across. I'll be taking over existing relationships and onboarding new clients as the practice continues to grow. But there are clients who I'd like to continue my relationship with. Um, I am receiving advice in relation to what I can do and what I can't do from a legal perspective, but I can't help but feel a bit emotional and attached to these client relationships. And I'm wondering what ethical considerations might be at play here. Um, so it might help me to think more clearly about my actions. I might kick off with you, Selena, if that's okay. Sure. Um, tough situation to be in. Um, I think that um, the advisor-client relationship is always um, very personal and it's one that's developed, you know, there's, there's a trust. Um, so it's always, in my experience, a really tough decision when an advisor is leaving what they do with their clients. Um, and I think if we're ignoring the legal framework, um, what ethically um, needs to be the focus is um, I almost think the advisor needs to... Um, uh, to remove themselves from the role and think about what's um, best for the client um, moving forward. So um, I think that they need to make sure that they've set the client up for the best prospects of success um, once they are not there. Um, so irrespective of where, where the client lines um, lands, whether it, um, they stay with the existing practice or whether 
um, they follow the advisor. I think that needs to be the touch point. Um, so, you know, we the, the code talks about maintaining records and um, and uh, making sure that they're accurate, they're up to date. Um, you know, if, if we wanted to take a, a strict interpretation of the code, I think that's one of the things that the advisor needs, um, needs to think about. But... Um, there needs to be probably some thought as to, um, you know, who is, who's left at the practice that he's leaving. Are they Hmm. um, appropriately qualified to, um, to um, give advice to the client? Um, That gets in, you know, if the answer to that is no, Hmm. that gets into a very tricky situation because there's legal frameworks, obviously, that underpin his employment. But, um, you know, it's this this tension now we've got a a code of um, conduct that um, puts the client's best interests at heart. So um, whether or not there is um, an obligation to say to the client, um, I'm not sure that um, that, uh, in my absence... People are going to be able to um, provide you appropriate advice. Um, that is, you know, that's that's a very situation-driven um, scenario. But um, I don't think that if if the if the um, advisor is hoping that the code of um, conduct will excuse uh, a breach of a compete clause, <laughs> a non-compete clause, um, I don't think that's. <laughs> I was going to ask you that actually because yeah. um, I wondered, uh, you know, to what extent um, could an advisor use the 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 code of ethics to because at the end of the day it's, it's a code in law right yeah yeah it, it, it is it is and um i think i mean the issue is that the there is a private contractual relationship that exists between the employer um and um advisors as wonderful as they are much like lawyers are often not irreplaceable um so you know there is that transition that occurs all the time so it would seem um pretty uh, Pretty tough scenario for an advisor to say, well, um, it was absolutely in the client's best interest that they that they come with me um, to my new venture and that that justified me breaching a, a clear non-complete, non-compete clause. You know, th- those topic for, for um, another day, another podcast, those non-compete clauses in themselves yeah. are always contentious um, and ultimately clients choose where they want to go. But I think um, the touchstone for me with this ethically is making sure that the advisor feels like the client has been set up for mm-hmm. um, success irrespective of where they're going after um, this uh, the departure. Yeah, no, definitely that's um, well handled and a lot of unanswered questions in this one as well. But uh, what about you, Kim? Any thoughts on this one? Yeah, look, it's not an uncommon scenario and I've been in the situation myself. And uh, I think the first point is is you do have very special relationships with your clients, but actually you've got it. So this is where you self-reflect again. It's a relationship that that client's got. Uh, and I think this goes to what Selena says. Did they buy the proposition from the firm as a whole and you were just a bonus on top of that which built that relationship over time and as, as Celine said if you if you walk away from there would they still be very happy with what the service or in terms of the the yeah I guess the service proposition that they get from that firm so I absolutely agree most non-compete these days are clever enough to say that you're that you're not allowed to respond even if the client comes to you hmm. They will come to you if they're of that mind. And I think that's when an advisor has to, once again, self-reflect on the new practice that you're going to. Could it, could it offer the client really what they, what they need for their service needs? You know what they need because you've been advising them. 
um, be very honest about that. Or are you going to say to them, you've got to dump that portfolio and take on this this one because none of that stuff will have APL or I can no longer give you insurance advice because this licensee doesn't have. Is there limitations in the news? So you've got to be really honest with yourself because you are going back to that person and saying, yes, um, this practice could potentially take you or you are trying to dissuade them from coming. But ultimately, the client's not contractually bound to the old licensee. And I think at the end of the day, from a commercial perspective, if the licensee tries to be demanded, client stays with them. It's not going to happen. Hmm. It's not going to be, um, it's not going to happen. And so where does the client go? It wants to come to you. So I suppose fundamentally, do you try and, in inverted commas, buy that client? So offer some financial um, compensation in order to ultimately get that client out of that fairly difficult situation. Because the licensee won't want the situation where the client has starts to be uh, a detractor in terms of talking about their experience with them. Uh, they're not going to stay with you anyway. So, what's the best thing to do? Well, it's salvage, salvage it and talk about some sort of compensation. And I think that's a pragmatic way of getting them through that. But it is really, really tough. Um, yeah. yeah, no, interesting. And I know you've mentioned that self reflection point a couple of times, which is obviously a big part of, of the code. Do you find that's something that you, um, you bring up with advisors regularly, Kim? Absolutely. If there is any ethical dilemma, that look, even if there isn't, what I've been trying to encourage all advisors to do is to self-reflect before they go into to a client meeting. It doesn't matter how long the client relationship's been done. You need to really understand what you're... And they are unconscious biases that you may be taking into that meeting. And you can't do that if you just quickly jump into the meeting, you know this client, you're on first names terms um, with them and their families and, and it's a great relationship. If you haven't done that self-reflection, there is a potential that you, you could miss something or you could go down a path that may not have ultimately been the best part for the client. So I'm not saying that once you identify any biases that you take into to client um, arrangements, So number three, does the code of ethics create its own ethical dilemma by contradicting chapter seven? Section 923A of the Corpse Act says conflicts must be managed, whereas standard three of the code says that you can't advise when a conflict exists. How can advisors resolve the contradiction between the code 
given that the code places the onus on the advisor for compliance, whereas the licensee has responsibility for Chapter 7 compliance, but in the end, both must be obeyed. Is the conflict's priority rule the safe harbour? So, you know, I, actually, this is a this is one that seems to have been speckled throughout our conversation. So, interested in your thoughts on this one, Kim? Look, I, th I think um, I think it's a great question um, to pose if we're starting to look at things as, as an ethical dilemma rather than just which master do I serve, so to speak. Hmm. So, let's try and solve this how we would any ethical dilemma, and let's just put in a scenario. Perhaps the scenario is that you're remunerated as an assets under management uh, fee basis. And so when you're going to go in and advise somebody to put more funds onto your um, under your advice platform mm -hmm. or whatever, that will mean that you will get a higher fee as a result of it. So if we use that as the ethical dilemma in, in, uh, in having a look at this, I think you can then, you know, answer it through really what your Corps Act obligations as well as your code obligations. I'm going to stick with the code ones. So um, I'm going to use the word again. It's a self-reflection to understand what biases that you're coming into the arrangement with and, and seeing how they may be influencing the actual advice that you're going to be given. So the code requires you to act in the client's best interest for a certain day. Um, quite a few times. Um, this is about conflict of interest. So it's, it, it is interrelated to whose best interests we're actually serving. So conflicts of interest are going to be prevalent in most financial advisory situations. So the challenge there is actually this prioritising the client's interests over yours in order to arrive at the client's best interest. As I've said previously, it's well, you've got to look at the whole of the code in order to resolve this. So what you're proposing or what the conflict between your licensee potential could be is against the law. You've got standard one that's telling you don't go, don't go that path. But I think it's more interesting to sort of focus in on the, the best interest duty and how do you resolve that conflict of interest so that the client's priority is there. So go back to our example. They've got some additional funds to put into the investment. And, of course, it's going to come across to the platform where you get remunerated from. So putting that benefit aside, working through what the outcomes for that client would be because of that particular advice and realistically comparing it with a comparable product to actually arrive at the conclusion. And if, if the investment, the underlying investments that you do that would generate that higher fee for you would be the same potentially in another platform, then you probably haven't actually got a conflict. But this is this is where you've got to do the homework. Mm -hmm. And it is hard work. Mm. Selena, what are your thoughts? Yeah, look, I, I um, agree with what Kim's saying. I mean, um, not to hark back to the, the legal conduct rules, but we've got this very handy um, uh, statement that our duty to the administration of justice um, and to the courts is paramount. So it prevails to the extent of any inconsistency with um, any other aspects of our rules. And I think, um, as Kim said, what underpins the rules when uh, the, the, the code, when you read it holistically, is the notion of best interest. So um, to me, that is um, that that's the touchstone point. And if we look at 
say, um, the conflict priority rule in the Corps Act, um, it's exactly the same. It's where you've got a, where you've got a, a conflict of interest between um, your, your interests, um, your licensees, whatever, um, you've got to do what's in um, the client's best interests. And so um, if, you, if you reason it through um, and what you want to recommend um, ultimately is the client's best interests and, you know, there's this, um, FASI has introduced this, um, uh, this standard which talks about, you know, an unbiased person and what they would think about it. If um, working through that process and stepping back and thinking, yes, irrespective of the fact that, um, uh, that that conflict exists, ultimately what I'm proposing is in the client's best interests. I don't think it's an infringement of the code. Um, I know there was an awful lot of um, debate about this when it came out. Standard this standard three really um, mm -hmm. is the one that um, invoked the most debate. And when the submissions went in and the responses from FASIA came out, um, there was more commentary around that, I think, than almost any other aspect. Um, and so I did have cause to look at the guidance around this um, just to see um, see what they had to say. And what I found really interesting was um, the, the guidance adds some words that isn't actually in the standard itself. So the standard just mm -hmm. says that, um, that you um, must not advise, refer or act in any other manner where you have a conflict of interest or duty. Mm -hmm. And then when you look at the guidance, they actually add the words that is contrary to the client's best interests. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it really embraces that whole um, notion, uh, the whole process that Kim's been through and, um, and the integration of the conflict priority mm -hmm. rule because the touchstone still comes back to the client's best interests. Yeah. So, and seeing that, do you see that as, a, um, you know, inverted commas, watering down or and or on the other side of the coin, do you think that that has gone far enough to give clarity to, to for advisors to act? I think, it, um, you know, ideally it would be in the code itself as opposed to in the guidance. <laughs> so it was clear that conflicts were allowed um, provided that they were in the mm. client's best interest mm. um, so that there was a match between, uh, between the conflict priority rule and the Corps Act um, and the code. Um, I think that the reason that they didn't do that is because they didn't want to bind to a concrete situation. So um, their view is still um, in the guidance. Um, there will be some scenarios where um, you won't be able to um, conclude that it's in the client's best interest. Um, but I, you know, I, I think that if, if I was looking at the spirit and the intent of the code mm -hmm. as to the uh, rather than the literal meaning, I think that it embodies what's in the guidance, and that is, you know, that that's the way that I would be advising um, a, a, a client or an advisor who came and asked me. And I, I think that that what we said before about wherever there's a, a loophole, we drive a truck mm -hmm. through it. And I think that 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 may perhaps be some of the, the thinking here because. The, the, the managing conflicts of interest has not necessarily worked as it is as it as it stood prior to the code. So this has to be different. But I, what I will say about the whole of the code, it's about behaviour. It's not um, so. It's not that box ticking or black letter law in my opinion. Um, it is about behaviour, and I think that we won't remove conflicts of interest. We can't. It's just we don't work because. We're, it's, we're not working voluntarily, we're working for reward. So we're going to have conflicts in everything that we do and that's just a fact of life, I think. To me, standard three is about that prioritisation. If you go through that process and you still 
can't see that the client is actually the one that's winning in this, this scenario, then you can't act. And that's what the standard's telling you. But if you just have it, oh, but, you know, we'll have it the way that we had it in Chapter 7, then we'll work with that out and we'll just disclose and we'll do all those things that actually haven't worked. Um, so we'll end up being okay with compliance with our back. We actually want the advisor to actually be getting to that conclusion that they've resolved that conflict satisfactorily enough in order to be able to proceed with the advice for the client. So that's where I land on it. I've never had a problem with it at all because I really do think people need to start thinking this code is driving behaviour changes, Mm. not necessarily just a bit more law to tip Yeah, and as to the very last part of that uh, relating to safe harbour, I mean, surely um, there's probably no need for safe harbour if the code is used and your ethical thinking is 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 kind of employed in that way. Uh, yeah. Yeah, look, great. Um, it's a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Kim and Selena, for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much, Matt. Thank you. Not at all. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Ethics and Professionalism podcast. A quick reminder that you can earn CPD points by visiting our website. If you'd like to submit a scenario, please send me an email for a chance to have it featured on an upcoming episode. In the meantime, please keep an eye on our channels to stay updated on future episodes. 